Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are pressing on in our series on the life of Jacob with James Jordan. Here, Jacob is still at Peniel, and Jordan is going to discuss the priestly and the kingly overtones of this text. He'll talk about the priestly character of circumcision and what a priest is. He'll cover again the progression from priest to king to prophet in the Bible and show how that plays out in different phases of our life as well. The priestly stages of life are those where we're mainly obeying orders. And as we mature and become kings, there are new challenges that require wisdom. If you've been a long-time listener to the podcast, you'll have heard some of these things before, but Jordan makes some new observations here that are very helpful. We really hope that you enjoy this time of teaching, and we want to thank you for listening. And here is James Jordan discussing the priestly and kingly overtones in the book of Genesis and the life of Jacob. We were considering circumcision and its relationship to this thigh wound here in Genesis 32. And I had made the point that circumcision makes a man into a sacrifice because animals are cut in pieces, and that's what circumcision does. A priest is a sacrifice in the sense that he offers himself through an animal. And in the specific thing that's happening in Genesis with Abraham is Abraham is being made a priest on behalf of all the other nations. And that's what circumcision is. That's why God-fearing Gentiles don't have to be circumcised. Unless they want to join the priestly nation, they're the ones being ministered to. Everybody in Israel, as a circumcised person, was like being ordained a pastor. There are also people who are Christians who aren't pastors, and so if you think of it that way, you understand that circumcision has that meaning. Everybody in the world had been baptized in the flood. And circumcision adds to that a calling of certain people to be priests. Now, all of those different things are collapsed back into baptism today. Baptism includes circumcision. It includes this foot wound. But at that time, God was stretching them out to teach us about things. Circumcision took those people who were baptized at the flood, all of whom had descended from Noah, and adds to it the privilege of being a priest. You see this again when Israel goes into the promised land. They go through the Jordan first, and then they're circumcised. They're baptized, and then given the additional privilege, danger, of being circumcised. Circumcision outwardly hinders a person. It's a form of death. You suffer from it. Remember we were talking about how when Israel came into the promised land, Practically speaking, it would have made a lot more sense to circumcise themselves before they crossed the Jordan and got near Jericho. Instead, they crossed the Jordan, got right near Jericho, circumcised and incapacitated themselves. And if the Jerichoites had had any sense, they'd have fallen on them and killed them all right then. Although men could not have done very much being in pain. But God prevented them from doing it, and that's how it works. Circumcision makes a man a priest, a priest for the other nations. And we said that there are a number of things that happened here when Adam and Eve sinned. They made fig leaves and circumcision takes away that shame. That's part of its meaning. But part of it also is in circumcision you cut away the foreskin, and that is the sacrificial part that's taken away. And what that means in context is that the son is given up. 
God's circumcision is on the organ that produces sons. And it's the son who has to be taken away and given to God. A man is divided from his son. The division between a man and his foreskin is equivalent to the separation of a man from his son. And the son is given to God. As with Isaac, that's where this leads. Right there in Genesis 17, when God says, I want you to circumcise, he says, I don't want any connection with that. After you're circumcised, you'll have a son. Then, 19, 20 years later, he says, give your son up. You can't control your children. You have to give them up. That's what baptism means for us. We give our children to God. So the priest sacrifices his son or offers his son. Offers might be a better word. We are willing to say, I'm not good enough to be a father. I'll do my best, but my relationship to my children is that I'm a steward over them because they belong to God. And when they grow up, I have to give them. And you see that in paganism and in natural heart, people don't want to do that. They want their sons to grow up and be copies of themselves. I certainly don't think it's wrong to name your firstborn son James Jordan Jr. I didn't do that. People do it without thinking about it. But if you were to look at that in a negative light, what you see happening there sometimes is the father saying, I want my son to grow up to be just like me. If I'm a blacksmith, he has to be a blacksmith. If I'm an intellectual, he has to be an intellectual. One of the great horror stories in history was Beethoven got custody of his nephew, who some suspect may even have been an illegitimate son of his own, but Beethoven decided that this child was a Beethoven, and so he should have musical talent. And he just forced him to take piano and study and study music year after year, and then forced him into giving recitals. And the kid had no great talent, and finally tried to kill himself. And finally, Beethoven realized that this child of his, in this case a nephew, was not going to grow up and be just like it. And you can't do that. My sons aren't going to grow up to be theologians. And for me to try to make them so would be to play God. I have to say, they're going to be different from me. And they might. Box kids grew up to be musicians. I mean, there's a whole family line there. and There's a whole family line of theologians in the Hodge family. But that's not always so. And that's a matter of giving your child to God and letting him grow up to be in calling the kind of person that God calls him to be. Of course, in teaching them about the Lord, that's what you do, do properly with your children. So giving your son up is an important part of circumcision. We mentioned that in the law, the animals that are sacrificed, the first one that's mentioned is the son of the herd. And so symbolically, every animal that you give in sacrifice is your son. And when you bring an animal and you lay hands on it and you kill it, you're doing what Abraham did. You're offering your son, a son of the herd. He doesn't use the expression son of the flock for sheep and goats, but he doesn't need to because the first sacrifice discussed is said to be a son and that carries on down to the meaning of all the rest. You're giving up your sons. Now what's interesting about circumcision and the reason it stops is when Abraham circumcises Isaac, He's already saying something, that Isaac is not going to be the Messiah because Isaac has to be circumcised and he's got to have a son who's going to be given up. And when Isaac circumcises Jacob, already we know that Jacob is not going to be the Messiah because Jacob has to be circumcised and give up a son to God. But that son is not going to be the Messiah. 
because he has to be circumcised. But when you get down to Jesus, you might expect, well, Jesus won't be circumcised because he's the last one. He's circumcised so that his sons are all of us. But he's not circumcised because he won't be the Messiah. So there's a slight difference in meaning there with Jesus. But now we don't anymore because the Messiah has come. That meaning of circumcision, that I'm not good enough to be the Messiah and I have to have a son and give him up, that's ended with Jesus. But it's continuing as a chain through the Old Testament. Well, that's all very interesting. Where I really wanted to go with it is to point to the priestly character of circumcision and what a priest is. And we were saying, priest moves to king moves to prophet in the Bible. And priest is like child, king is like mature, and prophet is like elder. And if you look at the priest, priest has a very limited number of things he's responsible for. And this is all laid out in Leviticus. All a priest has to do, the priest work with animals, just as the king does. The king is a shepherd, priest is a sacrificer. Well, it takes a lot more work to be a shepherd. You have to watch out for those sheep, and you have to fight off animals and all this kind of stuff. But if you're a priest, all you do with sheep is kill them. So there's a contrast, you see. The priest has a limited set of things he has to do. The word Cohen or priest means palace servant, basically. And what does the priest do? Well, he guards the palace of God, the tabernacle. Those Levites were armed to keep people away who weren't supposed to be there. He prepares the meal, which is what the minister still does today. Prepares the meals and serves them. He teaches. He teaches exactly what God has said. It's not the duty of a priest or of a pastor to be teaching American history or geography or even a Christian view of art and music. Those may be hobbies, but his calling is to teach this. Of course, it's infinite between these two covers, but it's a limited amount of stuff. He's a specialist in a particular area, not a generalist in all these areas. Priest, and of course in the Old Testament, the priest, well, the priest did not kill the animal, did he? You brought an animal for sacrifice, you killed it. The priest just helped you and prepared the meal out of it. So the priest in the Old Testament is almost identical to the minister of the word in the New Testament. If you consider the minister of the word is supposed to guard the church from heresy, in other words, guard the boundaries, and he prepares the meal. Whoever bakes the bread is the minister of the word. Usually he's going to break it and serve it, and he teaches the word. These things are almost identical. Well, they are identical to what the priest did in the Old Testament, except that there's no blood sacrifice involved. But we were saying that the priest's job is to obey meticulously precisely what is commanded and not to deviate from it. And so God tells in Leviticus just detail by detail exactly how things are supposed to be done. Nothing is left to discernment or wisdom. It's all spelled out just like you would for a child. Let's take an example. Yeah, Leviticus 3, just listen, the offering of a peace offering, it says, from the sacrifice of the peace offerings, he shall present a food offering to Yahweh, the fat that covers the entrails, and all the fat that is on the entrails, and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them, which is on the loins, and the lobe of the liver, which he shall remove with the kidneys. 
He doesn't just say offer the innermost parts and leave it to the discernment of the priest. It's all spelled out in precise detail. That's what you do with a child. I said last week, you don't just tell a child to go to the sink and wash the silverware because he may, as I know in one case was done, decide to wash them with a Brillo pail. And then your silverware will never be shiny again. It'll always have that nice curly-cuely look on it where the Brillo pad went over the silver. You have to spell it out. Now, when you have spent a number of years under authority with everything spelled out and quickly reinforced, God reinforces stuff with these priests at the time of Israel. If you sinned, you were dead. Nadab and Abihu come near with strange fire, blam, they're dead. There's no long-term extension here of learning wisdom by mistakes. It's either do right or get spanked. That's how you deal with children. With adults, you may have to say, well, you've done wrong, now you're going to have to learn from the consequences about this, and it'll take a few years. But with a child, that's not how you want to treat a child. Children don't learn that way at all. A child does something wrong, you spank him, get it over with. Right away. Again, this is very priestly. This is what a priest is like. And that's what Jacob has been like. And we also said, a priest is to be a perfectionist. As long as you have the animals here, you are to be a perfectionist in how you go about it. Somebody brings an animal and you see a blemish on it, you have to say, I'm sorry, you can't use this animal. It has to be unblemished. They say, oh, gee, this is the only one I have. I'm sorry, there's no room for flexibility here. You'll have to take this animal out, sell it, take the money, probably add a bit more to it, and go buy yourself an unblemished animal if you want to offer an animal today. Okay, when the animal comes, the guy says, I'm in a hurry, can we do this fast? No, the priest says, I'm sorry, we can't. Why can't you just kill it and dump it on the altar? I'm sorry, we can't do that. We've got to be very meticulous and careful. You lay hands on it, you kill it, we'll catch the blood out, I'll put the blood on here, you chop it up, and then we'll put the clean parts on, and then I'm going to bring some water over here, and you wash the unclean parts, we'll put the unclean parts on. Now, we have to do each one of those things in that order. And we have to put the wood on the fire at a certain point to make the fire that's on the altar get big enough to roast the stuff that's being put in there. You've got to be a perfectionist. And you can be a perfectionist because you only have a few simple things to do. It isn't complicated. The Levitical system is extremely uncomplicated. You know, we read Leviticus and think, gee, who could learn all this? <laughs> if you did these things for one week, you'd have them down pat. We just don't do them. There's only about five or six different sacrifices there. and You do three or four of them each day. It wouldn't take any time at all to where you learned exactly what to do. Just do them. Meticulous, careful, strict, obedience to a few rules. Very simple. Like a child. When Israel was a child, I brought him out of Egypt. Now, that's where Jacob has been up to now. Jacob has been living in the household. He's been under his father's authority. And he's been under Laban's authority. He's done exactly what they say. Now, it's a little bit more than what the Levitical priests had to do. It's not just rote observance of rules designed to make you change your thinking. But it is, so to speak, a simple life. He's had little kids himself. He's just been dealing with animals. In the Old Testament, when we were children, God said, you can fool with animals and learn how to live from animals. But do you see anything in the Pauline epistles or Peter or anywhere else that talks about working with animals? All 
all that stuff in the Old Testament about, you know, go to the ant and learn from the ant and learn from the anteater and whatever. All the stuff in Proverbs about animals and all the laws about working with animals and all the Psalms that talk about being like a sheep or all the analogies to sheep and shepherds and all the sacrifices with animals. There is none of it when you get to the epistles. Because when you get grown up, you have to deal with something much more difficult to deal with than animals. People. People is a lot harder to deal with than animals. People bite back a lot harder than lions and tigers do. So when you get to the New Covenant and we are mature, it says, we have to start dealing more with people. And the kingly side of things comes when you are getting out of this simpler stage of life when you've got your sheep and you're starting to have to deal with people. That's where David goes, doesn't he? He starts learning how to deal with sheep, protect sheep from wolves and, well, bears and lions. And then he has to start dealing with people. Dealing with people is a lot harder. And he has to protect the people from the bears and the lions. And that requires a whole lot more subtlety of thought and is a much more fearful thing to deal with. So we move from priest to king, and I believe very strongly that this stage in Jacob's life here is where he is, so to speak, given a sign of kingship. And that is this wound that's kind of like circumcision, but expands it and extends it. And it's on the inside of his thigh. And circumcision, which makes you physically incapacitated for two or three days, you recover from. But this wound here, Jacob never recovers from. He'll limp for the rest of his life. At least that's the implication. I know it doesn't specifically say from that day on he limped. But... I think that's the implication that you're now saddled with a difficulty that at the point in Jacob's life where he's ready to become a king and really start to do stuff, God cripples him. He's finally gotten out from under Isaac. He's finally gotten out from under Laban. He's coming in with this community. He's about to get things healed up with Esau. And now he could really do the things he's always dreamed of and he's gotten out of being a child and being under authority at the age of 97 he's got to where he can do his own thing and God gives him something that diminishes his ability to do it why? well that's I think what we want to explore here somewhat what it means to be a king and to have a limp If circumcision is the sign of being a priest, I think this thigh wound, which extends the bruising of the heel in a second way, and extends circumcision, that has something to do with being a king. Now, we can start talking about this here at the bottom of 104. As a sign of consecration, sacrifice, a wound to the area of the genitals means that this privilege applies to all of Jacob's sons. So the first thing I want to say about this is, is not just Jacob who's wounded, but just as circumcision is done on the organ of generation and thus has something to do with sons and children who are coming in the future, so this wound is done in the same place or next to the same place and has to do with those who are coming into the future. The source of the nation has been struck at the point where the nation originated. All of these people came out of Jacob's loins and that's where this wound takes place again, right next to it. Therefore, the entire nation participates in the wound and its meaning. 
the whole nation now is going to be a nation not only of circumcised priests, but of limpers. This is kind of interesting, I think. I don't know quite what to do with this, but I'm going to put it up for you to think about. Everybody's baptized in the flood. That's the whole human race. Everybody that's coming out after the flood. Now we have circumcision, which makes people set aside in a kind of a priestly way. Who gets that? Well, not just Jacob, but Esau. And not just Isaac, but Ishmael. So we have a group of people who are sort of in the circumcision category and who might be priests. And I'll tell you something, the nation of Esau then is the great counterfeit priest in the Bible. And then this group is divided, people who are circumcised and also have the wound, the limp. That's where it stops. There's no narrowing down beyond this. Israel is the nation of those who are circumcised and limp. Esau is a nation of people who are circumcised and don't limp. So they pervert the meaning of circumcision. They claim to be priests, but they have no humility. Israel is the people who are both circumcised and have humility. Try it again. Esau is circumcised. The position of Edom in the Bible is as a counterfeit Israel. That's why they're so important. They're like Cain and Abel. That's why the whole book of Obadiah will deal with Edom. And they will talk about their wisdom. Remember what's in Obadiah? I know that this is a book that we all read frequently. But Obadiah talks about you dwell in the clefts of the rock and think you're safe. Now, what do you think that alludes to? It alludes to Moses being hidden in the cleft of the rock when God passes by. And he's saying that language, of course, they did live in a rock city. But to call attention to it, among the things that God could say to Obadiah and the things he could have left out, you see, he's saying, you people claim to be the true Moses and have the true wisdom. He talks about their wisdom as if they were Solomon. They've got the wise men and they are dwelling in the rocks like Elijah and like Moses. They're the counterfeit priestly nation, and that's why they're important. But what they have also is pride and arrogance. What God tells Israel is, you must have humility and fear, because it's a pretty fearful thing to circumcise the whole nation in plain view of the city of Jericho. And it's a fearful thing not to have the ability to fight because you're limping. But to have a bunch of guys coming at you and be hardly able to stand up straight without a staff. That makes you weak. But as we said, in our weakness we become strong. Well, this whole nation is to be that way. Not just priests, but kings in the sense of a humble and weak person who is put in charge. Because kings in the Bible don't rule by sheer power, but by wisdom and subtlety and, in fact, weakness. When I'm weak, then I'm strong. Jesus becomes king by being the ultimately weak person who suffers and dies on the cross without even saying much of anything back to those who attack him. And he says, those who would be great must be least, servants of all. So to be a king means to limp. 
doesn't mean you never do anything. It just means you have this quality of life. And changing Jacob's name to Israel, which then becomes the name usually used for the nation, means the entire nation has that name. God wrestlers. The entire nation bears the meaning of God wrestlers whose seed is consecrated and sacrificed. So Israel becomes God wrestlers. Israel becomes the circumcised priestly nation that also limps and has humility. And they're all circumcising their children. And that means that at some point a child will come who will be the one who is consecrated and sacrificed and given to God. Now, the next thing we can say about this is this priestly nation, all of these sons who are now Israel, God wrestlers, and God's wrestlers, the priestly nation eats animals in a way that shows them as equivalent sacrifices because a priestly nation is a nation of sacrifices, and that's what we have in this business of not eating that part of the animal. The animals are equivalent to human beings, and that part of the animal is the part that we don't eat. Later on in the law, some of the animals, the whole burnt sacrifice, the whole ascension offering is cut into pieces and all of it is put in the fire. But the sin offerings and the peace offerings, it talks about the leg and the shoulder. And the leg is always given to the priest and for him to eat out of the sacrifices. But that leg is also going to include this sinew, which the priest isn't going to eat either. He's going to leave that behind. So that that part of the animal isn't eaten and whenever they kill an animal to sacrifice it, and even the non-sacrificial animals like deer and gazelle were told in Deuteronomy 12, when you kill them, you pour the blood out. So in a secondary sense, every time they kill an animal and pour the blood out, it is a secondary form of sacrifice or offering. Every time they do that, they include in that something that says, we're like these animals. The sinews of our thighs are given to God just as the sinew of the socket of the thigh of this deer or sheep is given to God. So we're all in that position. But this is a priestly nation. And at this point in history, Jacob now has a nation. Abraham didn't have a nation. He just had a son. Isaac didn't have a nation. He had two sons. But Jacob now has the beginning of a nation. He has his flocks of sheep. He has this bevy of kids. And they're all growing up now. Some of them are young teenagers when this happens, and they're about to become a nation in much more of a sense than Abraham. I said Abraham won the nation because he had his fighting men and everything, but he only had one son. This is now a nation of sons, and this name Israel makes them a nation, and so this is not just a priestly nation, which is a nation of sacrifices, but it's a priestly nation. So it has a kingly aspect. And that's what's happening here. The limp is permanent, unlike the wound of circumcision, and when God makes us kings, he puts us in a limping position. That's the frustrating thing. I mean, I could talk of my own experience of getting out of a situation where I was constantly under other people, and when I finally get out to do something that I'm in charge of, other things come along to kind of cripple you so that you can't do exactly what you thought you were going to do. This often happens to people in different ways in their lives. You finally are at peace with all of your enemies, which is what happens to Jacob here. He's now at peace with everybody. He's at peace with Isaac. He's at peace with Laban. He's about to be at peace with Esau. It's all over. He thinks, boy, I'm going to move into a happy situation here. The next thing we read is how his sons massacred 
the people of Shechem. Now that doesn't actually happen for another 15 years or so, but the way the story is written, we're starting to see what this limp means. We'll talk about that in just a second. When God makes us kings, he seems to say, okay, you're now done with this servant-child phase of your life. You're going to move into an authority phase of life. But right when we move into an authority phase of life and begin to think, boy, now we can really do the things we'd always plan to do. We're going to do it right now. All these years I was in the church and the people who were over me as the senior pastors in the church were doing stupid things. But now I'm the senior pastor and now I can do things right at last, I have the authority. Exactly at that point, God saddles you with something that makes it complicated to where you can't do what you thought you were going to do, and it's going to be a lot harder. Now, that's just an example. Whether it's on the job, or whether it's Jacob here, I think this exposes something in the way God deals with people in a variety of situations. You finally get to the point where you're in charge and you can do what you'd always planned to do, God puts something in there that makes it harder. Part of that is because when you become a king, you're given a new challenge. And this is the new challenge. The old challenge was, how can I obey these stupid people who are over me and be wise? That's what Jacob has to do. He's got to obey Isaac, who's a fool. He's got to obey Laban, who is even worse of a fool. He's got to submit to Esau, his older brother. And of course, in these families, the oldest brother has got a lot of authority. Even if he's only two seconds older, he's got authority over Jacob. He has to deal with that. That's the first part of life, but now he's to the point where he's in charge. God says, okay, and I'm going to throw another challenge in front of you. I won't wrestle with you anymore. The wrestling match is over. And Isaac won't be wrestling with you. Laban won't be wrestling with you. Esau won't be wrestling with you. You are now mature. You have prevailed. Now, I'm going to throw another problem in front of you that's different and more complicated. You have matured out of the simple problem. <laughs> now you get the advanced problem, which is this limp. That's because kings limp. Kings cannot be perfectionists simply obeying simple rules. The king isn't dealing with animals. And there is no charter in the Bible, like the book of Leviticus, for kings, where you've got every detail specified. And all you have to do is walk through it. Nothing like that when it comes to kings. When you get to the kingly period in Israel, you get all this wisdom literature, which is deep and complex, like Ecclesiastes, like Job. Solomon's the author of most of this stuff. Ecclesiastes, Job, and Proverbs. You put those three things together, and it gets really complicated. Proverbs is not as simple as people think. Proverbs looks like it says in different places, well, do right and get blessed, do wrong and get judged. And there are places that say that. makes it look as if life is fairly simple. And in some ways life is. But you match that with Ecclesiastes, which almost contradicts the book of Proverbs and says life is complicated and nothing seems to work out the way you'd think it would. That's the kingly thing. Kings have to rule by wisdom and that's messy. And what a king has to do is bring along a whole community and not simply represent the community. See, a priest relates to the community by representing it. So a priest can go off by himself in the tabernacle and go through these rituals with nobody else watching him. In fact, if he's inside the tabernacle, nobody else is watching him because nobody else can be in there. 
So he goes in and he trims the lamps and he changes out the showbread and he burns the incense and he puts some blood here and there on different days. He's representing the nation. That isn't complicated. That's why the judgment is so severe if he doesn't obey because it's such a simple task. But if you're a king, you're out in public. And if you're David, you got Joab. You got a limp. You got people around you, and you don't have the luxury of saying, okay, all you people just cut you off and start over. Moses faces that because Moses goes from his time of priestly service under Jethro to going before Pharaoh and then bringing this nation out, and he's in charge of it, and he might think, oh boy, now I'm in charge of things, I can do things right. I mean, look at Moses. Moses grows up in Pharaoh's household as the son of a king for 40 years. He has the mindset of knowing what it's like to be in charge. Pharaoh was in charge. And as a prince of the house, Moses knows what it's like to be in charge. And to say to one man, go, and he goes, and another man, come, and he comes. He knows how to do that. And so now, at the age of 80, all these people come out in the wilderness, and he's in charge of them. And then what happens? Man, it starts to limp like crazy. They don't want to go. They want to go back. They complain one thing after another, and they wind up wandering, limping in the wilderness for 40 years. But Moses can't get rid of them because God has stuck them to him. And so while Moses would like to just stride through the wilderness, these people are right here in the socket of his thigh, and they're making him limp because they're with him. And he can't go straight through the wilderness because he's got this community of people with him and he has to figure out ways to bring them along. And even there, that's fairly simple because God is in there passing judgments and making the earth swallow people alive. When you get down to David, the miraculous side of things isn't there, but David has the same problem. Once David becomes king, he's got to take the whole nation with him. He's got to prevent the Ephraim tribes from rebelling against the Jacob tribes. He's got the family of Saul to deal with. Oh, it would be nice just to kill Ishbosheth and take over the twelve tribes and rule them. But that wouldn't work. If he tried to do it, those tribes would rebel and the nation would split. But David has to sit there for seven and a half years while Ishbosheth is trying to run things in the north and the family of Saul is still contending for the throne. And then when he becomes king in his own right, he's got Joab. Well, it would be nice just to kick old Joab out. Get somebody you can really trust in here. But Joab is David's family member. He has a big standing. At this point, after all these years of contending with Saul and Ishbosheth, Joab is a national hero. David can't get rid of him. But because he can't get rid of him, David's rule is crippled throughout the entire time he's king. This is not to speak of David's own sin. I'm talking about being a king and having a limp. David could have been the perfect king. And he still would have been stuck with Joab, who was a violent man. And at the end, David tells Solomon, kill Joab. See? Now, how nice it would have been if David could have killed Joab. And he tells him to kill him because of something Joab did about the time David became king. Murdering Abner? Whoever it was. The details are getting soft in my aging mind. I think it's Abner. His murder of Abner. And what was David had said, boy, if I could have just put Joab to death for that crime right then, 33 years ago. But he couldn't. Because when you're king, you have to limp. Because it would have split the nation if he had done so. And so he has to weigh out much more difficult problems. 
you can't be a perfectionist. You can't say, ah, we're going to just institute biblical law and kill anybody who disagrees. If you were to do that in America today, just impose biblical law on things, the nation would fragment. You'd have anarchy everywhere. You have to work slowly and carefully to persuade people to the point where they want biblical law. Or at least so many of them do that the minority that doesn't are forced to go along with it or at least are willing to accept it. The kingly part of life is the complicated part of life. And you can't just make a beeline to where you want to go. You have to limp and go here and go there. And the movement is difficult. And that's because kings aren't just symbolizing a community or representing a community or praying for a community. They actually have to lead the community. How do you lead sheep? Well, it's hard. How do you lead people? It's much, much harder. And that's what gives you the limp. So I've got down here, compare David. Let's see if we've already said all that. When David becomes king, his former enemies are put down. Just as when Jacob got his limp, his former enemies stopped fighting him. But now David has to lead everybody, and he's saddled with Joab, whose behavior compromises him. Moreover, David's sons compromise him and disgrace him, just like Jacob's did. And here you see, David kind of brings this on himself by his own sin with Bathsheba, which sets a pattern for his sons. But even after his sons begin to sin, Jacob is thinking, how do I handle this? Got the crown prince here, Amnon. Everybody loves the guy. He's on TV all the time giving interviews. He rapes Tamar. What do I do? And then Absalom kills him. And Absalom is definitely the fair-haired boy of the nation. What do I do with him? Hard cripples you cripples your ability to do stuff and you have to live with it and try to figure out the right way to do it and it isn't easy. That's why you spend a lot of time being a priest first, learning as much as possible from being under authority so that you have some sensibility on how to do things. Now when the Israel came out of Egypt, God did give them a social law like the laws of Leviticus and that gets them started but that social law is not a complete law code. And it's only the beginning of the kind of wisdom that you have to have to be a king. God doesn't give them a king or make them a big nation for 400 years. That's when the situation gets complicated. It's kind of easy in the days of judges. Kind of priestly. Simple. People go after strange gods. God brings in another tribe to rule them. They repent. God sends them a judge. You know, this is a fairly simple story. You get to the kingdom period... You get sins and difficulties that are a whole lot more complex. You're dealing with these big empires. You're put in a much larger situation. One other thing I want to do, and then we can stop, is call your attention to Exodus 4. We can say a few words about Moses we already have. But in Exodus 4, we have another wrestling circumcision passage. Now, I want to point it out to you so that you can maybe added into your long-term memory. Exodus 4, verse 22 to 26, and I'll just read it from this. God says to Moses, You shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says Yahweh, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I say to you, Let my son go, that he may serve me. But you have refused to let him go. Therefore, I will kill your son, your firstborn. So God says he's going to kill the son, the firstborn son of Pharaoh. Because Pharaoh didn't let God's son, Israel, his firstborn, go. Now it came about at the lodging place on the way that Yahweh met him and sought to put him to death. So the angel of Yahweh is wrestling with somebody and threatening his life, just as with Jacob. Now who is this him? 
Sometimes people think it's Moses, but you see in context, I will kill your son, your firstborn. It's the son of Moses, the firstborn of Moses, that is being attacked. And Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched it to his leg, and she said, You're indeed a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone, the son. At that time she said, You're a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Now, I don't want to talk about the bridegroom of blood thing. That's complicated. What we do see here is this wrestling and circumcision combined into one event, which has to do with Moses' son. And the mother church administers the circumcision on this occasion. Where Moses was, we don't know. He just doesn't seem to have been there. The circumcision makes the son victorious and God departs. That's what's interesting here. God wrestles with Jacob and Jacob wrestles with him all night long and finally God says, you're to the point where I want you to be and you prevailed so we can stop fighting. This occasion, that's all collapsed into the act of circumcision. The angel departs. The son is victorious through circumcision alone, which means that all of this previous stuff is being applied to him. But at the time his son is thus circumcised, Moses is the one given the limp wound. From then on, Moses has got the complication that Jacob is given when God wrestles with him. So even though it's the son that's being wrestled with, Moses is in the background there. And as I said to you, up to this time in Moses' life, it's been fairly simple. Pharaoh's on the throne. Moses is a crown prince. He just gets to study and travel around and do whatever things the royal household would appoint him to do. He doesn't have any terribly hard decisions to make. And then he's working out there with Jethro and just taking care of Jethro's flock and having a good old time, nice peaceful life. Occasionally having to fight off a lion or a bear, but it's not too complicated. But now he's going to go back before Pharaoh, and it's going to be terribly complicated. Because every time there's a plague, the people he's trying to save are going to come around and saying, you're just making things worse on us. Now we have to make bricks without straw. He's going to limp from now on. And the 40 years of wilderness wandering is a perfect illustration of what the limping is. It takes that much time for Moses to get all the people there. If Moses didn't have to limp, he could have gone straight there. Now, what did God say to Moses when the people sinned and God had had enough? He said, I'm going to kill all these people and start over with you, Moses. And what did Moses say? He said, don't do it. Why? Because they are now attached to Moses. They're the limp. And Moses says, I can't get rid of these people. As much as I hate to say it, they're stuck on my heart. I can't get them out of my mind and I don't want you to kill them. Let me just limp along with them here and we'll eventually get there. And so Moses limps for 40 years, and eventually they get there. It would have been so much nicer to go straight there, but they couldn't do it. That's what this limp wound means. That's what's happening to Jacob. The first part of his life, which was hard, is over. The second part of his life, which is now going to be hard and complicated, is just starting. Hard and complicated. The first part of his life was hard, but it wasn't complicated. It's not all that complicated to get the spotted and speckled sheep over here and the rest of them over there. But this now is going to get complicated. He's got to deal with these sons, and he's got to deal with all the problems that are implied there, and that's shown back through. So we will come back to this. I think these themes are sufficiently interesting to where it doesn't hurt to dwell on them a little bit, and maybe this will get fixed in our thinking a bit more. Because it's fundamental to the history of the Bible. The shift from the Mosaic period to the Kingdom period is just this kind of shift. So we want to reflect on it a bit more. 
Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.